When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, Michael McMullen is with me. Let's cut straight to the chase. I have the coronavirus, or at least I've certainly had it. Um, I started to feel a couple of weeks ago that I'd got a cold coming on. Um, well, it was a cold. It was like a head cold, a bit of a cough. I was tired. Uh, sort of lost a bit of appetite. I thought that's what it was. And then I went to the Championship League, got tested under the procedures, and uh, it wasn't that. So I had to come home. Uh, I've been got to self-isolate for 10 days. So my isolation period runs out this Thursday, just in time for the start of the new lockdown. Um, I'm okay. That's the good news. I've had mild symptoms. Um, I live in a very kind of populous area of city centre in Birmingham. So, you know, I guess you've only got to touch the wrong thing in a shop or whatever. Um, I've been as careful as I can be. But as we know, the infection rates have gone up pretty dramatically, which is why there's going to be another lockdown. Had to miss uh, Championship League and the Champion of Champions. Hopefully we'll be back for the Northern Ireland Open. We'll see. Um, But uh, there we are. How are you? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, fine. Well, uh, no, no such problems here. This good to hear you're on the mend. The thing I wondered actually, and I, I don't think I've spoken at any stage through all this, which seems incredible now to anyone who actually has COVID. So here's a question I'd be wondering: Do they test you again to make sure that it's gone? Well, this this is a bone of contention because um, Gary Wilson sort of brought this to to attention because he tested positive. But apparently, if you're tested again, I think within I think within a month or something. You can still test positive even if you're not because there are dead cells still in your body. So I could be tested and it could still come out as positive, but I might not be. So this is something that um, could actually affect whether I do the next tournament or not. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, for example, Cristiano Ronaldo got tested again, didn't he? And he kept on testing positive and then yeah. eventually, eventually was negative. So, um, you know, it, the jury's still a little bit out about how that works, I think. But, um We'll we'll see. Uh, I mean, you know, you can get home tests and so on. Maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. Well, it seems incredible, actually, that you know. I mean, I've heard of people who I know testing positive or whatever, but I, I think at no point during it have I actually spoken to anyone while they have COVID. It seems remarkable when you consider how many people uh, have had it. But 
we get we move on, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's very annoying. Um, but uh, thank you to people that people have sent messages. So thank you. I hope to be back soon. This week, uh, we we plough on. Um, there may be the odd cough, bit of coughing from me, but uh, we plough on. We're going to go through some emails that have built up. And <laughs> we're going to start with one from Neil Folds. And mm-hmm. you're going you're gonna to read it for us. Well, you might remember that Mitchell and Webb sketch. I think it was called Number Wang, and it was about <laughs> yeah. it was about a game show with a completely ludicrous format. Um, well, when I read this mail, I think it's a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, for some reason, I started thinking of it again. I don't know why. Um, so we were talking about doubles. This is something that comes up every now and then. People say, "Should we not revive the old world doubles?" And we'd mentioned this on a recent podcast. So Neil. Who I think when Neil gets a rare week off these days, because he's so good at commentary and punditry, he's so much in demand now, so he hardly ever has a week off. So he doesn't know what to do with himself. So in his last week off, he decided the thing to do was to write this. So he's written this under the heading New Tournament Format, based very loosely on Mark Williams' idea of a doubles event with names initially drawn randomly from a hat. This event incorporates three doubles rounds and three open draws, but ultimately one person will win it, brackets, and not two. So... 128 tour players, phase one. This is Neil's idea. Random first round draw of doubles pairings and opponents. For example, and I've no idea how he came up with these four names. Mark Selby and David Grace are drawn against the pairing of Barry Hawkins and Nopon Sankam. <laughs> this is best of five. And the pair of Selby Grace win through. So 64 players now left in the event. Uh, phase two sees the 32 winning doubles combinations play each other in a best-of-five match. So, for example, what he's got here, Selby and Grace have teamed up to win their first-round match. They then play each other in singles in the second round. So you're now through to 32 players left. And uh, he's obviously pitching for a future as a tournament director here because he's uh, come up with this uh, practical idea. They could even stay on the table in which they won their doubles match to play two rounds in the same session. It's like the European Masters, this. So phase three... This is where all remaining players are drawn randomly for another round of doubles. So you've got 16 pairings, eight doubles matches, still best of five. And then you once again revert to singles. The eight winning pairs play each other in phase four, which leaves eight players remaining in the event. Once again, the singles could follow on the same table. Phase five, and he's put in brackets. And by now things are getting very serious and the money is doubling up. Eight left and pairings are randomly drawn for another round of doubles brackets he's posed a sort of philosophical question here would you rather be paired with a leading player or a lower ranked player as if you win the doubles you have to play your doubles partner for a place in the final we could get an entire podcast out of that if if this ever comes to pass to confirm phase six is whoever wins both doubles matches will play each other singles in the semi-finals over the best of seven or nine frames and the two winners are in the final phase seven the grand final no twists this time just the two surviving players of both singles and doubles matches compete for the trophy, maybe over nine or 11 with an MSI or mid-session interval mm. after four frames to bring us back to a serene normality. So to summarise, 64 doubles matches, random drawn, 32 winning teams play each other in round two, eight doubles matches after a random draw play each other in round three, remaining 16 winning teams then play each other, two doubles matches randomly drawn, leaving four surviving and unbeaten players Semi-final consists of the two winning doubles pairings playing against each other. Grand final is the two remaining players. And then he's written a little summary at the end of his basis for all this. He says, I think this event would combine everything we are now missing from the tour, i.e. some doubles and also a random draw. 
as we once had in the British Open. You would have to commentate, of course, Dave, because you're missing from the tour at the moment as well. <laughs> um, I haven't a clue who would win such an event, but he or she would need to have team and individual skills. Oh, and finally, I think it should be a ranking event as it's all played under the rules of snooker, unlike the shootout. Little dig there. Yes, there is luck involved, but if you are a low-ranked player and in round one you are fortunate enough to be paired with a leading light, it's worth remembering you will have to play that same player in round two, so it evens things out. And then Neil channels his inner partridge by finishing off by saying, if you don't like this idea, Sky will. Well, that remains to be seen, so Neil Neil might go off and uh, do a deal with them. So he certainly put a lot of time into it. I mean, the last thing Neil put as much time and effort into was that Scooby-Doo script that he came up with a couple of months ago. So. He's certainly got creative. So what are your thoughts on all that? Well, you know, I don't like to use words like lunatic. Obviously, that wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be nice. No, listen. Well, interestingly, I know that he sent it to Matt Hewitt um, from the WPBSA. Oh, Matt would love it, yeah. Well, but the first thing he said was, OK, well, how does the how do ranking points, uh, how does that distribution work? Which, which, of course, Neil didn't have an answer to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, listen, I'd watch it. If that tournament was on, I'd watch it because it, it, it kind of, it, 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 it's the two sides, isn't it? I guess it's the friendly side of snooker, you know, doubles partners. And then it's the, the, the more sort of um, ruthless side where you have to essentially beat the person you've just won a match with, which is certainly unique. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think it put in all seriousness, it, it would be a way of making doubles more interesting because there's always been the feeling that, the players don't really care as much in the in the, the old doubles events as they did in the individual events. But if a doubles event became an individual event, then, you know, who's to say? Who's to say it wouldn't work? Yeah, but I, I think the thing with the doubles was that people liked the, the idea. It was played just before Christmas, always. Like, it finished generally around, I don't know, the 12th mm. or 13th of December. And basically, you'd seen these guys playing against each other all years because generally the top players played with each other and they tended to be the ones doing well in the doubles. So it was just... The novelty, I suppose, of seeing them playing each other all year and then teaming up for this event and watching how the teams would evolve through the week. I think if you kept changing the teams, it wouldn't have the same appeal. Yeah. People look back on the doubles with nostalgia. I mean, that's why people want it back. You actually look at a lot of the matches weren't that great. And of course, it's not surprising Neil's nostalgic for it because I think it was at 82 to 87 that the world doubles ran. And that, of course, was very much Neil's heyday. So it's not surprising he would be nostalgic for it. And then even when it came back in a different form as part of the World Masters in 1991, I mean, Neil was still one of the top players then. I think he would have been ranked number five at that time. Uh, who did he play with? He played with John Parrott most of the time. Yeah. I think he played with Terry one of the years. I think at, so, at yeah. least one of the years, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, uh, as Neil will remember, um, when he played in the mixed doubles at the World Masters, he played with uh, Janie Watkins, who mm-hmm. was... Um, I think it's fair to say something of a pioneer for snooker on the internet. Global uh, Global Snooker Centre. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. yeah. I mean, in the old days before live scoring, if you wanted to find out what was going on, certainly from qualifiers, you know, her website was was the one. But we're drifting a little bit from from Neil's idea. Be interesting. Like us. Well, if you look back, I mean, the two of that era you've you've talked about, the two great doubles partnerships were Steve Davis and Tony Mio. Yeah. And, and Stephen Hendry and Mike Allett. They yeah. sort of cleaned up between them. Now, if it had come down. At that time, obviously, to a match between those two. I mean, you know, you'd heavily fancy Davis, obviously, because he was the world number one. So, and with Hendry, by that time, he was, you know, the top player in the world. Um, it would be a bit of a cruel end, I think, if you just played doubles and then had one last one last singles match between the two. But, um, 
you know, thinking outside the box. So this is... Uh, no, this, never this, think outside the box. This, well, you know, I, ideas are there to be debated, and uh, it's not the worst idea I've heard, I'll say that much. No, but, you know, that's because I could list three or four far worse yeah. ideas, most of which, you know, including you signing Quinton Hahn in a bar in Dublin one night. I mean, that's, that's definitely got to be one of the worst. Um, well, I'm just thinking, actually, Davis and Mio, well, they would have won the doubles in 1983 and then played each other in the final of the next tournament, the Ladder Classic, a few weeks later. So, and that, again, this was very much Neil's heyday. So um, it, it sort of happened maybe back then. And, of course, as we referred to recently, I think that ruined Tony for years because he looked like he was going to win and he was put off by an untimely shout from the audience. Um, I, I'd say it's unlikely ever to happen. Apart from anything else, where would you even put it in the uh, in the calendar? But uh, full marks to Neil for, for trying. Yeah, and, you know, it's a little less uh, weird than that Scooby-Doo thing. Um, yes, everything is less weird than that. Let's move on. Um, Dave Tindall, uh, regular correspondent. Oh, yeah. And this is actually, this is an interesting, with lockdown coming back, this is an interesting one. He said, with no tournament action for a few weeks, I decided to see what snooker stuff was available on the various media outlets. On iPlayer right now, it's Slim Pickings, although excellent pickings. A documentary called When Snooker Ruled the World, a look back to Snooker's Golden Era in the 80s, and also an episode of Pop Black from 1983. It's Jimmy, I've seen this, I don't know why it's on there, just one episode, but he said, uh, it's Jimmy White versus Alex Higgins. Jimmy 73 so quick they have to fill the rest of the show with Jimmy talking through the break with Ted Lowe. <laughs> uh, Ted Lowe, by the way, uh, two days ago, it, it was his centenary. He would have been oh, 100. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Dave continues, Netflix throws up nothing for some reason, but Amazon Prime returns no less than 1,303 results when typing snooker in the search grid. Most are tournament highlights which don't even work, while there are a couple of strange ones, such as the Jennifer Aniston film Along Came Pad. <laughs> I don't know, don't know how that relates to snooker. <laughs> and an episode of The Fast Show. Does Paul Whitehouse say isn't snooker brilliant, perhaps? Well, I think I think Steve's in that, Steve Davis. I think Steve he, Davis was in an episode of The Fast Show. No, do you know what he was? Now, he may have been in The Fast Show as well, but he definitely appeared on Swiss Tony, which was a spin-off from mm. The Fast Show. No, but you're right, actually. He was in a sketch on The Fast Show as well. It was based on Shaft, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was it, yeah. That would explain it. Anyway, Dave continues... Oh. The search also throws up the documentary called Jimmy White, The One and Only. It seems terrible at first, just a guy with a wobbly camera following a rather bloated Jimmy around on tour in 2008. But it soon becomes fascinating viewing, thanks mainly to Jimmy's Irish manager, Kevin Kelly. There's a tremendous scene, uh, which lasts several minutes, when the drunken duo are on the verge of coming to blows in a pub before a, before a beyond-sozzled Kelly disgraces himself further by falling headfirst out of a limousine. Later, he's seen having a mock fight with Tony Drago. I also did a search on Virgin, and for fans of snooker in popular culture like me, there are a couple more curios. One is an episode of the cartoon Danger Mouse, in which, as the trailer puts it, a giant spaceship is seen heading through space as part of an intergalactic 147 snooker game and wants to pop the Earth. Danger Mouse, now this, is, this is where we get very niche here. Danger Mouse's psychic Penfold, who, as Charlie Brooker notes, bears an uncanny resemblance to Professor Jonathan Van Tam, is voiced by Terry Scott. And that stirred a memory that there was once an episode of the 80s sitcom Terry and June called Snookered. I, go <laughs> I, I googled it. Of course you did, Dave. And hey, yeah. press, it must be pointed out, Dave is someone who, this is the guy who ordered the cutout of Alan Weeks, the former yeah. pop, pop black presenter. So, of course, he googled Terry and June. And hey, presto, it's available to watch on Daily Motion. Filmed in 1982, Terry has just purchased a 6x3. And I've seen as, this. I've yeah. seen it. I remember this episode. 
and he's practicing on it in the lounge. But rather than recreate the 82 World Finals like any sane person would, he challenges June to a game. Terry puts an early point on the board before June, aided by some TV trickery involving another woman's hand, plays two cheap screw shots on an opening red and black, going on to take the frame in one visit. A disgruntled Terry decides to sell the table and in a twist discovers it belongs to Joe Davis. Talking of which, I also found a recent program called The Repair Shop in which two experts restore an antique snooker scoreboard that a guy found when buying Fred Davis's former house in North Wales. I know all this is a bit niche, but that's a good thing for this podcast, isn't it? More to follow. Mm. Well, there was a lot there, wasn't there? There was a lot there. I don't, I don't recall the Terry and June episode, but you clearly do. I've seen it. I've got four things to say there in response <laughs> to what David said. The first thing, that when snooker world, ruled the world, I think that was shown... Uh, on the first day of the World Championship final, probably about 15 years ago now, and it was in between sessions, and you and I were sitting in the Crucible press room watching it. And at the very moment they were talking about the 85 Black Ball final, who came and sat next to us but Steve Davis? I mean, the, of all the surreal moments we've had over the years, you know, I think that, that was right up there with them. Um, the, the other thing, uh, it's amazing, Dave, that you mentioned that Jimmy White DVD, because that's uh, Dave Tyndall I'm saying that too, but you might remember this, Dave. There was a weekend where uh, I was in London and well, you were down in London as well. And we went to a 30th birthday party. Mm-hmm. And we also went to the wedding of Ivan Hershowitz, who's still World Snooker's media star. And we watched that DVD that, that weekend. And we were sitting looking at it thinking, oh, look at these old guys. You know, this is, what, this is what, it's, what it's like, you know, when you're old and past it and you're falling out of taxis and things like that. And it's funny <laughs> you should mention it because it only occurred to me about two days ago. We're almost the same age as that as Jimmy is now in that dvd so that was sobering uh as for um danger mouse well david jason did the voice of danger mouse didn't he um yes he was, he was yeah so uh he, he was in a lot of um snooker related things because there was an episode of wind in the willows where <laughs> um they, they, which uh, david jason i think played mr toad didn't he yes. and he challenged someone to a game of snooker they'd actually made a little snooker table for that you know claymation or whatever you call it and mr toad uh, had made, placed some big bet on the match, thinking he was really good at snooker. But when the match started, it turned out he thought the object of snooker was to hit as many cushions as you could. So, obviously, that kind of went. There's an episode of Only Fools and Horses as well, where he ends up having to play a game of um, pretend snooker with uh, an escaped murderer. So, he's he certainly a, quite a career of, well, of snooker things. Go on. Well, no, I was going to say the great snooker sitcom episode is Steptoe and Son. Um, I've they, never seen this. Well, well they get a, they, they get a snooker table for the yard. Obviously, they're, they're rag and bone. Well, I say obviously. There's no reason why people should know they're rag and bone men living yeah. in this yard. They get a snooker table, and of course, it's 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 a full size table, and it's too big essentially to play. So they end up having to sort of play through the window, and they're like, and anyone yeah. who's ever had everyone anyone who's ever had a six foot table at home, and there's not quite room, you know, you're sort of queuing up the wall. No, yes. very very. I think I think that's the quintessential sitcom snooker episode. Yeah. Yeah, the game will quite literally drive you up the walls in that case. Indeed. The, the, the last of the four things I want to say, I mean, and it's so obvious, we're uh, drawing together the uh, first two things we've talked about this week on the podcast. We can guarantee that by this time next week, Dave Tinder will have emailed us again, having played out a tournament on his home table <laughs> under the format Neil has suggested. And he'll tell us maybe that, I don't know, Roger Bales has emerged as the winner of it. Well, no, well, if he's really going to tie it up, he's got to play as Terry and June in a double in a double partnership. <laughs> Uh, I see. What, I see what, to, with yeah. a cue sticking out the window in the style of Steptoe and Son. Yes, I seem to remember. Wasn't Ray Reardon in Sorry, the Ronnie Corbett uh, sitcom? I think he may have been. You know, 
Well, I remember the programme. I don't remember the episode, but let's face it, it's the sort of thing that you'd be unlikely to imagine if it hadn't really happened. There are also, if you go on Amazon, I think you have to pay for them, but there's, well, there's a couple of snooker films. Obviously, the new one, Break, which I, I interviewed the director on this very podcast. Mm. That's come out this year. And there's another one, I think, well, I think it's called Perfect Break. Um, I reviewed it for Snooker Scene. Must be getting on for 10 years ago now. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy is in it, actually, with John Virgo. They play themselves, although very brief mm. cameo. Um, I would say it's no good, uh, personally. But, you know, it's a snooker theme. It's a sort of... They're all rocky stories, really, aren't they, all these things? Um, yeah, so anyway, that, that, that might be there. But uh, I, I'm, I'm intrigued about the Jennifer Aniston film, actually. But anyway, yeah. uh, we, we, anyone else who's spotted any snooker outside of tournaments in popular culture, let us know. Now then, um, let's drag this to the present day. Joe Richards is talking about the Championship League. I think this tournament should be scrapped. <laughs> drag, 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 straight to the point there uh, no hello or anything uh, dragging a tournament out over a six week period and around three weeks of play is frankly bordering on boring it's no surprise it received no TV backing this time other than free sports I think the tournament was only a success initially because it was the first sport back after Covid tournament taking up such large proportions of the calendar and players time has to be worth it both financially for the players and in terms of entertainment value, Matchroom are really off the ball with this one. By far the worst tournament on, on the calendar. Well, of course, Joe, that's you know you're entirely uh, entitled to that opinion. One thing I would dispute, though, when you say it's not worth the players' time, they only had to play three days actually in total. Karen Wilson won thirty-three grand playing three days of snooker, so I think he would uh, regard it as worth his time. And of course, the other thing is, you know, it's been put on because normally at this time of year we go uh, the players go to China. Um, that can't happen at the moment, so it is giving them an opportunity. But you know, you're perfectly entitled to not to like it. That's your uh, prerogative. We'll move on because this is slightly related okay. to uh, Danny Hayes from Newcastle. Another one here who discovered the podcast during lockdown. Have listened to most of the older episodes when out walking or running. Absolutely love it. Extremely informative and good crack. Thank you, Danny. Just a couple of queries though. Now this this relates to uh, the Championship League when Sean Murphy was commentating with Dominic Dale. And there was a discussion about uh, why is the spider called the spider? He said, and they, they essentially, the, the issue was that Dominic, you know, he's old school. Mm. Um, he insists it's called the bridge rest. And he had this thing in a match where he asked for the bridge rest and the referee didn't know what he was talking about. Because, of course, every, Dominic, everyone calls it the spider. That's why. Anyway, they, so Sean said to Dom, well, why is it called the spider? And Dominic didn't actually know. And Danny here is saying, he said, I had a look online. I couldn't find any info. Um, my theory on that, Danny, is that it's essentially it's just it's it's kind of a name that has stuck. So at some point, when that particular rest started to be used regularly, someone said, "Oh, it looks a bit like a spider," and it became sort of it's almost like colloquial. It became known as a spider. That's my theory. Uh, he continues. Secondly, I live in Newcastle. The northeast is a big snooker-loving area with many clubs and some good players on the tour. However, other than an event in Newcastle in the early 2000s and the Grand Prix briefly taking place in Sunderland. I'm not aware of any other events taking place here. The closest one to us is in York. Just wondering if there were, if there are any plans to have an event here each year, or to see if I'm missing any that have taken place here. Thank you to Mike, you, Michael, and everyone else who's contributed the last five years. Thank you. Well, of course, I think in the in the 80s they had one in Newcastle, didn't they? In El Eldon the Square. The Jemison International, yeah. El Eldon Square, uh, yeah. which was a big event. Um, as he mentions himself, the Nations Cup was certainly in Newcastle. I think British Open was there one year. Um, I guess this is a bit of an issue. Um, there's actually more snooker, certainly in England, than there's probably ever been, but they tend to be um, concentrated in certain areas. So, like, Yorkshire have had quite a bit of snooker. Obviously, Sheffield, York, Barnsley in recent years. Um, 
Some of the old venues, though, you know, we, we used to go to on the south coast, for instance. They used to be very popular down there. Places like Brighton and Plymouth and Bournemouth don't go there anymore. Um, so I guess there are pockets of the country where it's very popular that they don't get tournaments. I mean, even in the West Midlands where I live, you know, we we, we had the, the Coventry event, obviously, mm. champions. But other than that, nothing. The old Matchroom League largely addressed this, didn't it? Because they used to specialise in taking it to places that didn't have any tournaments of their own. And that's the thing. Snooker's so popular throughout the UK. And there's only so many tournaments you can have in the country during the year. So you're not going to get around them all. So, I mean, as far as I remember, they were fairly popular when they did have the events in Newcastle. So it's potentially something that may happen in the future. Dominic would have loved that conversation, by the way. I mean, he just loves all that stuff. I'm sure he asked for the bridge rest just so he could yeah. be asked, why are you saying that? I mean, this is someone who once, you know, I sat with a breakfast in a hotel while he explained to me using uh, the salt and pepper uh, why some pockets play more generously than others. I mean, he just absolutely loves all that, that old, old school stuff. So I guess, yeah, I mean, that is just it. it. It does look a little bit like a spider and someone says something once and well, next it's thing like you know, it sticks. Well, it's like the swan neck. I mean, obviously, that's, yeah. not, that's not what that's called, but it's become known as that because it looks like a swan neck. So I'm sure Dominic will be able to tell us what, what that really should be called. Uh, let's move on to uh, another regular correspondent, Alpha Bonzi. Um, he said, just finished listening to your last podcast. Your podcasts, which I stumbled on before lockdown, are the only thing keeping me sane during lockdown. In answer to Mike, now we were talking about making the highest break uh, in the last frame of a tournament. Oh, yeah. He said, in answer to Michael's question about high break in the last frame of tournament, I can only think of Mark Selby's 1-4-1 to tie the high break in the last frame of his 2008 Masters victory against Stephen Lee. Of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan missed the final black for a 1-4-1, which would have won the high break in the last frame of his 2019 Players' Championship win over Neil Robertson, who had a 140 during the tournament, that century being O'Sullivan's 1,000th in tournament play. Also, an answer to the listener who suggested interviewing celebrities who can come on for free in exchange for plugging their latest project. A polite thanks, but no thanks, unless they can recall the depth of the 1990 Mercantile Classic final. <laughs> Otherwise, as Michael pointed out, they should contact the Graham Norton show. OK, well, fair enough. Um, oh, hang on, he continues. <laughs> he continues. I had ideas for podcast topics before. The Rodney Walker one you rightly refused, as there were people, Muppets, as you accurately said, who ran World Snooker before him, but were far worse. Did I use that word? I can't remember that. Um, but a better one, which would appeal to Michael especially, is on his memories of growing up with the Irish Masters, from watching it on TV as a boy to working in the press office, working as a commentator, eventually becoming MC, from its growth as a prestigious invitational at Goffs under B&H sponsorship to being forced to move to Dublin in 2001, the organiser having to sever the B&H sponsorship for an anti-tobacco charity sponsoring it to become a ranking event in 2003, a disastrous move in hindsight, uh, to falling off the calendar in 2006 when Rodney Walker, there he is again, fell out with the local promoters. That was the most extraordinary thing for me, actually, the way that it turned from being a B&H event to literally the next year, everyone was wearing anti-smoking badges. I know. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> because that was the thing. It, it, it was uh, Micheál Martin, who's actually the Taoiseach Prime Minister now. He was the one who brought in the ban on tobacco advertising. And it wasn't like in the UK where they were given a few years. It was pretty much, you know, from now on, you have to stop this. And there was a little bit of a political storm over it, only a small one, really. But, you know, people, the Benson and Hedges Irish Masters was a hugely popular event here. And people didn't like the fact that it was being put in jeopardy. And, of course, the government at that time didn't want to be seen to have caused this event to be called off and lost forever. So they basically brought their anti-smoke. The Department of Health, really, um, came in as sponsors and used it to promote 
their no smoking message that they were trying to to push at the time. I think I might still have it. Actually, they had those little badges, yeah, which which had a cigarettes on them, which were broken in half, and there was a little kind of uh, red bit on the end, like the lit bit of a cigarette, and you you switched it on and it lit up. I think I might still have mine somewhere. I'll definitely have to look for but that. The thing, but the thing about that is, like, uh, unless you were close up and you saw what was on the badge, it actually looked like it was promoting smoking. Because it yeah, looked like yeah, basically you're just wearing a cigarette badge. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was, it, it, was a, it was a strange thing that it happened in that way. But then, as you say, it became a ranking event. And, and the reason was because it was being run so badly at the time. We were down at the start of the season to a calendar of six ranking events. So they wanted to boost that a bit. They brought back the European Open, played it in Torquay. As we said before, I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? Having a tournament in a hotel in Torquay. <laughs> you know, fans of Faulty Towers will know what that's all about. Uh, but then the other one they did was they bought the Irish Masters effectively off Kevin Norton, who was the longtime promoter. I think they paid him something like £400,000, then paid him £50,000 a year to run it. And the madness of the whole thing after that was that it ran as a ranking event for three years. By that stage, the government were still sponsoring it, but it was now through Fulcher Ireland, which is effectively the tourist board. Then that arrangement came to an end. And then we were told the following season it wasn't taking place because the dates for, mm. that, for the tournament were needed for China. So just think about that. They had bought the tournament. It had cost them well over half a million pounds effectively to do it in order to fill out a sparsely populated ranking event calendar. Now, a couple of years later, it was being dropped on the grounds that there was no room for it in the calendar, which was no less sparsely populated than it had been three years earlier. But the one thing I would say about that is I have my doubts as to whether or not it would have gone ahead anyway, because it would have been very, very hard to get another sponsor, obviously non-tobacco and obviously outside of the government in a relatively small country like Ireland. So whether or not it would have happened in 2006, I don't know. But certainly after 2005, it's... Uh, it disappeared off the calendar, and remarkable to think it's now 15 years since it was last staged. Well, yeah, I think in retrospect, the word Muppets was, was aptly used. Um, <laughs> let's move on, Scott McCarter. I wanted to pick up on the story of Trump's remarkable success. We're talking Judd Trump here, of course. Uh, we are speak, speaking on Election Day. Uh, in, in episode 108, you both discussed great rivalries. While I personally think Higgins v. O'Sullivan is the GOAT rivalry, Trump-Robertson is the best current one. I know O'Sullivan is world number two, but that's only because he won the World Championship, which carries the most ranking points. Trump-Robertson rivalry is one that will play a huge part in the future history of the game. It'll be interesting to observe. Trump leads 13-10 in previous matches. Interestingly, David Caulfield of Snooker HQ observed... I see, I didn't know this. He said the English Open final won by Trump was the first time either of them has won two matches in a row against the other, excluding, oh, wow. ex excluding the Championship League, Trump having won the German Masters final in February. Well, I mean, it's a great rivalry, and I think one of the reasons is, as we sort of said last, last time, is that they play a very, very, very similar game, and we saw that with the, with the last two frames, the way they ended with just a break-off shot and then a century apiece. Uh, Matt Parker, I absolutely love the podcast. Congratulations on the five-year anniversary. Thank you, Matt. I've been thinking recently about Stephen Lee's ban, which is due to expire in four years' time, and what a great story of redemption it would be if he got back into form and onto the tour. At the time, the ban running to his 50th birthday seemed like a life sentence, but today, with the average age of current players, who knows? He was such a talent despite his ban. I'd love to see him back. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic, how possible it would be for a player to do this. Well, the problem he's got, uh, Matt, is that he still owes Will Snooker a fortune in legal fees, and unless he pays them... 
regardless of whether the band runs out or not, he won't be allowed to play. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of pounds. And it would seem unlikely, you know, he's probably going to have that money. He certainly would want to pay it unless he was absolutely determined to, to make a comeback. So th that's the impediment. It's not age, I don't think. And I'm sure he can still play a reasonable game. He's got to pay that money. And, uh, you know, in the, in the last decade, there's been no sign of him paying it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the issue, I guess. Um, go on. Well, I was going to say, I don't think many people would welcome Stephen Lee back into the game, to be honest. I think most of us were appalled by what happened all those years ago. And I don't think it's viable anyway, because it's hard enough to be competitive on the circuit at the age of 50. But when you've not played on it for 12 years, I mean, you know, you talk about being ring rusty. So I, I don't see it happening. I, I think that the reason you've given is probably the bigger impediment, actually. I mean, he would probably like to come back on and have a go again. He'd have to go through Q school, of course to get back onto the circuit. But I don't see it happening. And, and frankly, uh, you know, from my point of view and the point of view of a lot of people, um, I, I don't think there'd be any great welcome for him if, if he did try to come back. OK, now we have a, a Matilda Thomasy. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. She's written before, actually, from Italy. Uh, hello to Dave, Michael and anyone else who might be present. I'm Matilda. I wrote to you a few months ago about the snooker scene in Italy. I'm pleased to let you know that since then I've gone from 20 to 21 and my best break has gone from 40 to, has gone from 40 to 50. So congratulations. Uh, snooker has been a once a week on Saturday occasion for me. A couple of days ago, as I was toiling away at work, it hit me that this meant that I would be going to the snooker club on Halloween this week. Of course, it's just, just gone on Saturday. That in itself might not have been so bad, but additionally, my club has managed to stay operational in this time of ever-increasing virus restrictions thanks to a sketchy and somewhat debatable circumnavigation of the anti-COVID measurements put in place last week, stating that all sports clubs and activities would be closed, except to players involved in competitions of national interest, which I kind of am, but not really. <laughs> all of this was coming together to make me feel like this upcoming Saturday was sure to be a cursed day. Given the grim mood of this festivity and of the times we find ourselves in, I have to ask, could you please share with us some of your most memorable snooker horror stories? I myself can think of a scarce few examples beyond the occasional broken tip, stolen cue or airport luggage mishandling. An example that comes to mind would be the 2002 World Championship quarterfinal between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Lee, in which following a moment of, of frustration, Ronnie threw his cue in the air only to see it dive back down and hit the bed of the table tip first, causing a rather extraordinary tear in the cloth that had to be mended in short order. I'd also like to highlight the ever mysterious footage of the 1990 Clydeside Classic final oh, between, Steve, brilliant. between Stephen Hendry and Ray Ridden. I've watched that clip many times and stared in bewilderment at the, as the green bays turns to water and nearly drowns Stephen as he's addressing the final black. And, and, and I'm yet to understand the context behind it. Well, I'll, I'll jump in there because that, yeah, this is people have sort of discovered this on YouTube. It went around again last week. Essentially, this looks like it's a, it's a proper snooker match. It's Stephen Hendry against Ray Ridden. Um, but it was, it was actually a short film on Channel 4. And, and as you say, at the end, Stephen, essentially, the, the table turns to water and he essentially drowns or, or you know, comes very close to. Uh, but it wasn't a short film. It was an art film. It was the 80s. It was Channel 4. Um, so, yeah, I don't know really the story behind it, but that's it. that's what it is. It's obviously not. The Clydeside Classic is not a tournament. Uh, Matilda continues, of course, broadening the scope to all snooker-related media. Few things can top the horrors of Peter Ebton's hit single, I Am A Clown. All the matchroom mobs' nightmarish productions, such as Snooker Loopy and the Romford rap. There's one in the eye for Neil there. Though the horror in this case is undoubtedly of a very different nature. I look forward to hearing your stories. Thanks, as always, for the work you do. And, of course, happy Halloween. Well, of course, 
the thing about snooker, uh, Matilda, is it, it relies. I mean, the literal game itself relies on so much luck. Obviously, the players who win the tournament have to have the, the skill as well and, and the mindset. But so many things can happen. So many nightmarish things can happen um, on the snooker table itself, let alone around the actual game. I mean, you know, if you want to broaden it out, I guess Stephen Hendry having his cue broken at Heathrow, the cue oh, that yeah. the cue that won, you know, seven world titles. I mean, that's that's got to um, qualify as a horror story. Um, been a lot of bad luck tales here and there, and some players sort of convince themselves that they're generally unlucky. Of course, Stuart Bingham, they all call Boron because they reckon he's the opposite, although he's, as we record this, he's just lost 4-0 to Trump, so maybe <laughs> not so much today. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's been all sorts of stories down the years. I remember there was a player um, from the Ukraine, not the Ukraine, uh, Armenia, sorry. Um, oh, Ashot Potikan. Exactly, Ashot Potikan, and he ha- he made... But a sort of three-day journey to come and play in the old Benson Edges Championship, which was a qualifier for the Masters. Big deal for him. Previous only tournament he could play in, you know, wanting to represent his country. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, there was a mix-up. Either he misread the date or they gave him the wrong date, and he arrived a day late. So he got the, he spent three days getting there. It was a day late, couldn't play. <laughs> mm. There, there are a million of these stories, aren't there? And I mean, my favourite one, I, I think we'll all agree, is the greatest one ever because it, there were just so many elements to it. And also because of who it happened to and just his sort of personality and sense of humour. Uh, the business with Graham Dot. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't even remember all the details, but you well, probably remember it a bit better. I think you were there, actually, weren't you? It was Shanghai, and Graham had to get a connecting flight firstly from... Um, and then I think he had to fly... It wasn't direct to Shanghai to fly somewhere else and then Shanghai. So it's three flights and there was heavy fog in Glasgow. So he missed the first flight, which meant that he then missed the second flight from Heathrow. So it was sort of a knock on effect. And it took him essentially about 36 hours to get there. But he was still there the day before his match. But of course, he was so jet lagged. He got in the hotel, gone to bed, slept through the alarm call. He was just so tired, eventually woken up. And he's now got essentially 15 minutes to get to the venue for the match. Uh, famously, didn't put on any underpants, yeah. just put on his, on his trousers and his dress suit. Found a taxi. Taxi driver, despite being from Shanghai, didn't seem to know the way. Maybe, in fairness, Graham, his accent is not the most <laughs> easy to understand at the best of times. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was a miscommunication. But essentially, it was clear the taxi wasn't going to get him there. So he, he, he basically just jumped out and, and ran essentially half a mile, got there. He would been knocked two frames, so he's 2-0 down, but still, you know, that's recoverable. I think he was playing Darren Morgan. Uh, still recoverable, uh, but eventually got beat. He got beat 5-3, and I, and I remember, because I was there, I remember saying to him, because, you know, he related this story. I mean, Graham is hilarious anyway. Oh, he is, yeah. But he's related this story in this most downbeat way, deadpan way. And I said to him, you know, Graham, after all that, how do you feel? And he just said, suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> That was that, there was no sort of silver lining to be had. He'd spent all that time going there, and and yeah, it was um yeah. But I mean, players, British players, sort of overseas. I mean, Mark Selby. I think we told the story. We did um about you know not not realizing it was it was night. He thought it was the afternoon. It was the middle of the night. Um, sometimes when they go abroad, things can happen. Yeah. I mean, well, they don't even need to go abroad. I mean, remember Neil Robertson trying to get to Barnsley, <laughs> you, know, you know, to play in a qualifier there. That Clyde side classic thing, by the way. Honestly, you know. Even if it means missing listening to us for a week to give over the time to it, just watch that Clydeside Classic thing on YouTube if you've not seen it. It is 
just staggering. I mean, there are so many elements to it, and it's just like nothing else you'll ever have seen. Just to, as we're talking about, you know, Matilda talking about snooker in Italy, and I remember her getting in touch before. Did we mention Claudio Ravignani? I don't think so. Back back at that time. Now, he was, I think he was essentially from England. He was from Staffordshire or somewhere like that. Uh, but he was of, obviously, with a name like that, he was of Italian background. So he represented Italy. He won the most niche title in the history of the game. Do you remember what it was? He actually won a tournament. I, I don't remember, no. Okay, he won the plate competition for early losers in the 1990 one-frame international knockout. Wow, I don't, I don't yeah. even remember there being a plate. Yeah, there was, and, and, and he won it. But also, again, it's funny how we keep coming back to the same people and the same themes over and over. Neil played him. Neil yeah. played against Claudio in the World Masters um, because he actually beat someone, and then he played Neil, and I think Neil beat him. 6-0. Maybe, of course, they'd played each other in the doubles the previous day and <laughs> won through. And, you know, it's funny how we keep coming back to the same things. But, you know, you're looking now at Brian Nachoyski from France, who looks like a really good player. Julian Boyko from Ukraine. These are countries with absolutely no snooker tradition whatsoever. So mm. no reason at all why we couldn't see someone coming through from Italy. It's always a matter of volume, isn't it? And they're even finding that in Germany, where there's so much interest in the game. But they're not getting the volume in terms of people coming through and playing it. You need to have a lot of people playing so that you can pick up on the one or two who have the talent, and then they come through and, and make it at the highest level. But it's, it's no more reason why that sh you know, shouldn't happen for Italy than it might well do in the, in the near future for France and Ukraine. Just finally on misfortunes, we can't, I think we can end without mentioning the, the late Willie Thorne, who uh, of course told many stories against himself about things that happened. The, possibly the most famous was when he played Drew Henry in the UK Championship mm. in, the, in the days when it was best of 17, first to nine. Seven one up going out for the final session. Very loudly said to Alan Hughes, the MC. So seven o'clock. Very loudly said, you know, get the get the restaurant booked. Eight thirty, Alan. You know, we'll be there. No problems. This was in front of everyone, including Drew Henry, of course. Fast forward to eleven o'clock. It's eight each, uh, and of course, Drew Henry beats him nine eight. So uh, that, that's another sort of uh, misfortune, slightly slightly self invited. We're going to do one last email now. This is from Matt Tarrant, who actually he actually emailed twice and the second time said ignore my previous one but actually because he found the answers in in climb's book but actually um i think it's quite an interesting email so we will read it, it come, it's two questions first is how many consecutive podcasts has fergal o'brien been mentioned in well in fact <laughs> until this week this is the first mention of it yeah uh I we probably would have gotten in before the end somehow but anyway I had the idea of actually re-listening to recent episodes, but much as I enjoy love this podcast, I do have a life, a job, and a family to fit in alongside your fabulous elicitations of all things snooker. I don't actually need an answer to this question, but please keep the Fergal references flowing. Well, in fact, here's the thing. Now, this, this, this goes back to our previous uh, discussion about misfortunes, because the other thing, of course, is players staying in, in accommodation that is not necessarily always you know, five-star. And certainly when you're starting out, you're looking to stay in B&Bs that are on the cheap side. I think it was Bournemouth. It was certainly one of those uh, coastal towns. Fogel was staying in, in a in a and b and, and went down for breakfast, hoping for some sort of fry-up. And, you know, he came along, sausages, bacon, beans, no eggs. He, he said, any chance of a fried egg? And the reply came back, I'm sorry, we, we need all the eggs to bake a cake. <laughs> Which is not really the answer you're looking for when you paid your money. It might only have been 20 quid a night, but come on, get the eggs out. So anyway. Yeah. That, that's, Fer, Fer, Fergal's a lot like Graham Dot, actually, in his personality and his sort of dry sense of humour as yeah. well. So, you know, again, it just makes the story even funnier knowing that. Yeah. Anyway, that's Fergal's uh, mention this week. Yep. Uh, uh, 
let's continue. So his main question is, he says, your discussion on sponsorship was interesting last week and got me thinking, why is it snooker attracts and has attracted sponsors who purvey products that have difficulties attached to them? Tobacco, alcohol, gambling. I guess the answer is in the question, but something about the image of the game too, male-dominated. Snooker clubs have bars and were filled with smoke for many years. He said, my club in the 80s had signs that said, do not place ashtrays on the snooker tables. Wasted youth and all that. Think about other sports sponsors. While culture, they've all been Barclays, Rumbelows, Milk and others in football, Sky, Ineos and lots of European banks in cycling, Zurich in rugby, Rolex and Emirates in tennis, NatWest in cricket, Eon and Avis in golf. I could go on. I know we mentioned Dulux and Mercantile, but we mentioned the Mercantile almost as often as Fergal, but that was at the very zenith. Oh, yes, they sponsor Snoop football too, Zenith Data Systems. Mm. Little little pun there uh, of snooker, pop, snooker popularity. Why wouldn't a major bank, insurance company, retailer, data systems company provide a sponsor for a snooker tournament? And why is it Matchroom, um, I mean snooker, what is Matchroom doing to address the answer to the question? Because gambling sponsorship will finish like that of tobacco did. It can be a harmful addiction like alcohol and tobacco, so we'll be regulated in the same way. Well, thank you, Matt. And uh, yeah, I mean... And he then replies and says he found a lot of other sponsors going back. Listen, everybody wants as much sponsorship money as possible from as many companies as possible. There is still, despite the viewing figures and despite the exposure Snooker enjoys, there is still a certain, if you want to call it snobbery or prejudice or whatever you want to call it, against Snooker. A lot of companies would rather be associated with football. They'd rather be associated with tennis and golf. I think I've said this before. I think one of the reasons is... Fans of, for example, golf and cricket, these sort of and rugby, these sort of very middle class sports, are more easily identifiable. One of Snooker's problems actually is that the fan base is so wide. So you go to like the Masters, for example, it's men and women, it's children, it's older people, it's a cross section. Now you would think that would be a good thing, but if you're a company looking to target a specific demographic, who do you actually target there? You know, you can't actually target you know, they they, they would target as they call them, ABC ones and all this sort of the way they define people socially. Uh, it's harder to do that in snooker. So, in, I mean, obviously it's a good thing, I think, that we have such a broad fan base. But if you're a company looking to target a particular person, uh, maybe it's harder. Maybe that's why they, you know, the gambling firms do like snooker more because it's kind of they see that see it as that sort of that sort of base of people. Um, We've had the odd, I mean, there was a sponsor for the Masters. Was it BGC, a bank or That's some right, kind? Yeah. Barry, yeah. Barry got those and was very happy to. And listen, they could, I don't see what more exposure they could have expected than what they got on the BBC Eurosport and others. Um, at the moment, there just isn't that fit. And I don't, I don't know. Listen, if Barry can't change it, then I'm not sure who, who, if anyone can. Yeah, they're doing their best to do it. I mean, I know they're very aware of this situation. And, you know, football has mentioned there a huge amount of high-profile league clubs their shirt sponsors are bookmakers. And I guess the reason they're, they're not the title sponsors of the big tournaments is because, you know, football can get enormous companies, huge global brands to, uh, to sponsor the events. So, it, I mean, it is a situation that they're very aware of. They don't want to be so reliant on, on bookmaking sponsors. And well, look, we said this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And, you know, they're seeing the problem at the moment because it's a difficult time for the, for the bookmaking industry. So uh, it's not something that, it's easy to find a way around. It was certainly different. I mean, even when we did have all the tobacco sponsors, you think in the 80s, we had all kinds of other companies that would have been deemed far more respectable, for want of a better word. Uh, but we just don't seem to be able to do it at the moment. I've got to just go back slightly. I mean, we were talking about Fergal and the hotel. Mm. You might remember this around the same time. It was the UK Championship in Bournemouth in 1998. 
And again, you know, I was just starting out at the time, so I, you know, I booked into quite a cheap place. When I got there, it turned out they didn't have my booking, so they sent me to a different place, which was even cheaper. I think it was literally like ten pounds a night or something, which even then, you know, wasn't much money at all. I went into the room. There was no bed. There was just <laughs> well, what, there, do you, was what a, do you expect? What are you expecting? Come on. <laughs> well, the, the, what there was was like a little piece of the floor slightly raised up uh, in comparison to the rest of it, and a wafer-thin mattress on top of it. The curtains didn't even close all the way across the window, which wouldn't have been such a big problem were it not for the fact that the window was directly across the road from a nightclub with a huge flashing neon sign outside it. Uh, I thought things were looking up a little bit when I saw that at least there was a TV in the room, but then I realized there was no plug on it. I then subsequently found out that to use the bathroom, I was actually going to have to go into a different building altogether. And the whole thing was completed by the fact that the owner had bought two children's bicycles for their kids for Christmas. And for some reason, had tied the two of them together and left them on top of the bed. So I think by comparison to that, you know, Fergal actually got off quite lightly, just not getting eggs with his breakfast. Well, they were, yes, this was in the days before TripAdvisor, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, well, it was, I think, again, it was Bournemouth. And you, I can't remember whether you stayed there or not, but there was the, the place that was run by the guy who looked like Cliff Wilson. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. The, bre- the breakfast time there was 8 till 8.20. So yeah. you, had to, you had to basically be on the, on the, on the mark to get your breakfast. I, I think they did have eggs, though. So there was. Uh, they they, they uh, did. But, but of course, a lot of people staying there. It was Bournemouth, actually. I think it was probably the, the following year after that. It's a wonder I ever went back to Bournemouth. Um, but of course, you know, obviously that week with the UK Championship being on, it was half full of snooker people. And everyone knows snooker people, are, you know, very much uh, early morning types, you know, who love to, uh, you know, get to bed early and, yeah. and uh, get up at eight o'clock for their 20 minutes breakfast. But I remember the guy who looked like Cliff Wilson. And he had this black, evil looking cat who sort of roamed around the table while you were having the breakfast. Probably to hurry you up to get you out within the 20 minutes. <laughs> yes, well, there we are. So um, I think that concludes today's business. I'm interested, though, if anyone can think of any other snooker players in sitcoms. I'm sure Ray Rian was in Sorry with Ron Cool, but uh, Dave Tyndall will be across all this. But um, yeah. Because, of course, in the 80s, because snooker was such... I mean, we've spoken about this many times. Because it was such an important part of the culture. I mean, Bobby Ball died last week from Canada yeah. Ball. Steve Davis was on that show, and that was a huge, a huge rating show on ITV. Um, so any sort of memories people have of, uh, and they will probably be from the 80s, let's be honest, of any snooker players in unusual um, uh, programmes. Ken, I imagine, has been in a few in Ireland. Ken, Ken has, yeah. Ken yeah. was on, um, well, of course, he's very well known in Britain now, Brendan O'Carroll, um, with Mrs. Brown's Boys and all of that. But long before that, I mean, he was very well known in Ireland for about 20 years before that even made it in the UK. And Ken did appear on uh, one of his shows playing himself. And then there was another program, actually, where um, sort of famous Irish celebrities disguised themselves and went out and, you know, played tricks on people. Actually, Ken did that. And I think one of the people he played a trick on was Alex Higgins. So there you go. They, they dressed both... as a priest or something, did he? That was, I think you saw it, actually. I think I recorded yeah. it. You played yeah. it when you came over. We've got to mention, actually, as well, one other thing that, that I think uh, merits... Uh, inclusion this week is Peter Gilchrist. I don't know if you heard about mm. this. Yeah, so uh, he's a world billiards champion. He's won it a few times. And I think did play professional snooker for a while when the game was open in the 1990s. But w- whether that's correct or not, he's just been named Sports Personality of the Year in Singapore mm. uh, because that's where he's he's sort of moved to now and has a citizenship. So very, very rare for any Q sports person to win Sports Personality of the Year. Ken did it actually in 97 and Steve Davis won the BBC one in 1988. So 
Uh, certainly uh, worthy of a mention. He must be about 50 now, actually, Peter Gilchrist, I would have thought. Mm, yes, no, that was a, a big thing. Unusual uh, to see billiards recognised like that. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's kind of it. So um, we always enjoy receiving your emails. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, do you want to make a wild prediction about the US election? <laughs> My word. My word. Because this will be coming out on Wednesday. My theory is, I think I think Biden will win, and I think Trump will do everything in his power not to actually leave office. So um, yeah, because he's yeah, been I mean, saying he's been saying for months that, that it's illegitimate, and of course that's preparing the ground for for losing, which is the one thing in his life he cannot stand doing. Well, I mean, everything in these days seems to get won by someone called Trump. So <laughs> I suspect it. I, I have a I have a feeling Trump is actually going to win again because I think Biden has made a lot of the same mistakes that Clinton made four years ago, but. As I've said a number of times, even if Trump does lose, I mean, echoing your point, I mean, what happens then? He's still in the White House for another couple of months. What well, does he get up to in that time? And does he even leave of his own free will if he does lose? It's certainly going to be fascinating to see. Well, the worst result is if it's close, because then you can start to say, it's, you know, there's voter fraud or whatever. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, like, listen, we don't have to be um, we don't have to be impartial here. I hope Biden wins. Either. And I've got no no I've got no. Um, necessarily faith in joe biden as a great president but you know i just want the other guy out um yeah. i'm not I'm, I'm i suspect that that probably won't will make no difference though to the to the result not least because this won't come out until after the result so um i know we do have american listeners but uh well i was going to say actually that that guy who's been traveling around america i don't know if James he's still Cook. yeah Cook, he, he's, he's got to get in touch with us and give us his perspective on it all and we can have that next week and it'll probably lead into a discussion about you know, snooker players appearing on American sitcoms. Maybe he'll even have the answer to the Along Came Polly question. Join us next week. <laughs> yeah, well, if that's not an incentive <laughs> to, da- to download next week's podcast, nothing is. That's it. Thank you. And uh, we will be back hopefully next week. And do stay safe, everybody. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.